This same kingdom, as we've been speaking, is described as the cosmos, and it represents the collection of all that opposes God in the earth. Now, there was a time when it wasn't uh, configured in the finished format that would allow it to be identified as a kingdom. But the spirit of this kingdom has always been against God and needless to say, when Christ came into the earth, the focus of this kingdom was against Christ. When when this kingdom, when the idea of this kingdom, of this cosmos, was introduced in the Garden of Eden, it focused upon two things. It focused upon provision and identity. When the serpent, when Satan spoke, and this is the ancient serpent, you'll see again uh, the reference to the ancient serpent. Um, who gives his power, his throne and great authority to this kingdom as it emerges in that level of distinctiveness at the end of the age. When he approaches man in the garden, Adam being a type of Christ, Satan always being himself, and Eve a type of the bride of Christ, all the players were there then in seed form and they'll be all the players at the end in full expression. So what does he say? He basically says, is there anything to eat around here? Can can you eat of any tree in this garden? And Eve corrected him and said, oh no, we may eat of all the trees of the garden. Satan is always focused on lack because he knows that it opens the human soul to the emotion of fear. Lack is one of the most basic fears that humans have. It threatens his survival at its most fundamental level. So that's what he does, he comes in and he says, can you eat of any tree in this garden? Which is, my understanding is, is there anything to eat around here? So he posits his approach to address the question of lack. That tells us that his great weapon is the fear of the lack of provision. Now, It isn't necessarily that Adam believed that they didn't have anything to eat. He was just looking for opportunity to engage them. When Eve assured him that they could eat of all the trees of the garden except the one, then he focused on that and said he had secret knowledge about that tree. And he said, because God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. 
This is deceptive speech. This mouth has been speaking from the beginning of human time blasphemous things. I want you to see this, these things, okay? Because it's not some all of a sudden entrance into the earth. In fact, what of, of this kingdom, it has, it has been in the earth all along, but it hasn't necessarily been benign, although it isn't, hasn't been as aggressive as it's going to be. So, finding a way, finding a way to warm his way into the human soul and the emotions of the human soul, he suggested to them a vain approach. This is what you can do. You don't need God. You don't need God. This is what you can do. The kingdom at the end of the age has exactly that profile. You don't need God. If you can come together and share resources, you don't need God. What does it do? It shifts the focus away from God's original intent and places the focus on human survival. This is the fundamental philosophy of the cosmos. In all of its systems, in all of the ways it moves and maneuvers, it holds that promise which is a direct assault upon the emotions of the human soul, to cultivate the fear of provision, the fear of the lack of provision, and the fear of the lack of protection, and an identity separate and apart from God. And what does it produce? What does it produce? It produces alienation from God, and it produces an economy that is subject to your own ability to make it happen. God describes this economy as the sweat of your brow. God didn't curse Adam. There's no reference in the scriptures to Adam being cursed because the original plan of God remains intact even after Adam had fallen out of grace, fallen out of relationship with God because God knows the end from the beginning. He's going to raise up in Christ that fallen standard. But he said the earth was cursed for the sake of man and it would bring forth thorns and thistles and by the sweat of man's brow he would eat bread until he died. He was not saying that the sweat of the brow was the result of Adam being cursed. Adam was never cursed. The sweat of the brow was the economy that replaced the stewardship of the garden from a position of rest. What has God been trying to bring man back to since then? To rest. 
to re-enter the finished work of God, for God knows the end from the beginning. And in the end of the age, though these mountains of confusing messages will arise and threats to human existence will be made, the goal of God is to bring us back into the rest that He entered into since the seventh day, since the, 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 the last of the seven sequences of creation. That rest still remains. And this rest, in this rest, we encounter again the provision of God. So the conflict between the cosmos and the kingdom centers on, on the one side, fear to induce turmoil, chaos, confusion, and deception, so that you look to the kingdom of darkness for your provision, in which case you're entrapped in a mindset that separates you from God, versus entering into God's rest where you tatimi, you lie down in the fundamental truth that God is your Father and He will reward you with His presence when you diligently seek Him and His presence comes with everything necessary for life and godliness and a people will enter into His rest in these hellacious times whereas a majority of people will default to the terror and confusion and fear of not having enough. Both kingdoms will come into sharp focus and sharp relief at the end of the age. Now let's focus on the cosmos for a moment. Because the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit, and we'll come to that as we speak of the overcoming of the saints, but the kingdom of the cosmos is focused in the dread of the lack of provision, the lack of protection, and the search for an identity. Because when Adam left his father, he no longer knew who he was. The end of the age, and the juxtaposition to that in the end of the age, would be God turning the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers, as an indication of the restoration of that which was lost from the Garden of Eden. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that none of this should surprise you because it's the culmination of the themes that have begun since the Garden of Eden and the maturation of these themes in the final expressions on the earth. That's why it's foolish to say that this fourth beast stopped having any relevance and the reference to it was fulfilled at the time of the Roman Empire. No, that was a particular manifestation of it to those early saints. But what has happened since then is that this systemic kingdom has grown in its reach, in its scope, in its intensity, it has grown in the insidious nature of its culture to pervert the thoughts of humankind until now we have reached a place 
where that kingdom's existence is visibly represented in the following scripture. This is how people look when they walk in this kingdom. Uh, This is in uh, the book of uh, 1 Timothy, I believe it's chapter 2. It's the scripture that speaks of how in the last days perilous times will come, men will be lovers of pleasure. Yeah, here it is, 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy rather, chapter 3, verse 3. I just want to read, this is the evidence of that kingdom, all right? And it's spoken of as in the times before the return of the Lord. But know this, that in the last days, in the last days, uh, this term last days and last hour uh, is, uh, is a specific term. Last hour is eschathos, as in eschatology, eschathos aura, in the last hour, in the last days, marking out a period of time that precedes the return of the Lord. All right? Now, this is from Timothy. For men will be lovers of themselves. As you read these words with me, keep in mind what I've said about the earmarks of this kingdom. What does it deal with? How does it invade human thought? How does it deceive people? What is it that people lust for? Because that's what's contained in this kingdom. They lust for provision, they lust for protection, and they lust for relevance. And this kingdom has been established to take full advantage of men's souls and the emotions of their souls when their spirits do not lead their souls. Here is the results among humans. This is the quantifiable evidence that such a kingdom has come to exist and that it has reached such a place of and such a form that is as grotesque and as insidious, as godless, and as rejecting of truth as it will reach. In the last days, perilous times will come. Now, no, the times are as much perilous because of who men become. Rather than the outside intervention of this kingdom. Right now, right now in our world, men are lovers of themselves. Right now, men are lovers of money. Right now, today, men are boasters, proud, blasphemers. They're echoing the words of the evil one regarding God. Disobedient to parents unthankful, in other words, they're entitled, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. You see people all the time saying, I could never forgive. Unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control. Nobody's responsible for anything because I just had to do it. Without self-control. They're brutal, 
despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. From such, turn away. And then he goes on to talk about uh, the long-suffering love and perseverance that is created by those, a manner of life that is created by those or in those who follow his doctrine. So when this age comes to a close and we are drawing rapidly to the close of it, what you will see is how successful this deception has been in keeping people subjugated to this kingdom of darkness and which we call, which has been described as the cosmos. Now listen to John who speaks on this issue. He says, do not love the world, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. Whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the word here in 1 John for world is the word cosmos. Same John, writing in John chapter 3 verse 16 says, and you note the verse, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Wait a minute, do not love the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. But the same Father, your Father, the Father God, loves the world? It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a confusing point at all. There are seven different meanings to this word cosmos. All of them speak of an arrangement of order. In the case of the relationship to God who loves the world, the orderly arrangement is that of a father and a son because the word cosmos is an orderly arrangement, an adornment that may speak as readily to a relationship as it may speak to a world defined by systems. So the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a relational God. Now I go to my Father and your Father. And in the Kingdom, the strength and power of the Kingdom of God exists to support the relationship between God as Father and ourselves as His children, as the sons of God. I keep using the term sons because when we're talking of God as our Father, 
We're not talking about natural birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So we're speaking about the father of your spirits. So we have a spirit when we're born again, that spirit within us is released from its state of subjugation to the soul and is empowered, dunamis, is is engaged by the power of the Spirit of God and the first recognition we have and we cry out as a result of that recognition is Father, Father. So in the Kingdom of God, the entire Kingdom exists to support our sonship as the sons of God. In the Kingdom of Darkness, there is no relationship. There is no relationship to anyone. You don't have, even if Satan is described as Jesus once did, as our Father, it is not in any fashion uh, similar to a father and a son. It is your relationship to a system. The way that a system is used to control human behavior. So in that sense, the cosmos that has a God who created it, known as the Cosmocrator, the creator of the cosmos, relates to humankind through systems that are deceptively constructed to appeal on a one-to-one basis to human lust, whatever you lust for. So first John speaks of whoever sins is of the devil and he describes the kingdom of darkness as one that is that consists of lust. For all that is in the world, he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the, and the pride of life, they come not from God, but from the world. And the world, he says, will pass away, but the Son of, man, a son of God, or the man of God, remains. So the things that are in the world, he describes them as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All of the systems of the cosmos, and we'll we'll go further in talking about what these systems look like, are based upon the three imperatives of survival that the human has what drives him, the lust of the flesh, to preserve the, what drives him to preserve his life, the lust of the eyes, what he sees as reality, and the pride of life, how he can achieve what he, uh, what he has identified and what he sees and believes. These are what the systems of the world are designed to capture. So, what might these systems be? What are you talking about when you talk about a world that is systemic? And by the way, this is why it can oppress the whole earth, because it functions apart from geography. 
it's carried in the hearts of men, it's carried in the belief structures of men, regardless of where they live, in the same way that the kingdom of heaven is carried in the hearts of men, regardless of where they live. It produces the same culture wherever mankind lives. So, in the, the systems of, the, of, this, uh, of this cosmos, it has set out to entrap every desire that the human has for survival. It has set out to redefine his vision as to who he is, and it has set out to replace the empowerment of God with human toil. Again, the lust of the flesh, the desire for survival in all of its forms. This is, this is one of the pillars upon which the kingdom of darkness is, rests. The, the to-the-death survival of the human being, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, what he views as his identity, and the pride of life, what he trusts in, that is uh, in a compendium fashion described as the sweat of his brow. What can he produce to define who he is and to ensure his survival? What do people typically ask you if you meet them even casually? They want to know what you do for a living because they determine your survival based on what you do for a living and they determine your importance by what you do for a living. What you do for a living is not who you are, but it can become to you the definition of who you are, in which case it is the lust of your eyes, meaning it is the point of view that you hold as to who you actually are. It is your vision. Taking these bases as how the kingdom of darkness has been constructed to take full and complete advantage of the default setting of the human being when he's ruled by his soul, we will then look at the systems of the kingdom and see how they function. Now what I want to show you then is as we move forward to the end of the age, how these systems then will reach their apogee in both their offering of human survival and a vision for human life and the power by which humans may be assured that they will survive. So there's where we will go in the next broadcast. Blessings. Bye-bye.